Welcome to the Xterra Podcast. I'm Tom Patton. The Xterra mission is to explore and discuss the business of space and its effect on the national and global economy, as well as life on Earth. How does what happens in space affect your life every day? That's what we're exploring on the Xterra website, as well as on this podcast. Our guest for the next two programs is Dr. Namrata Goswami, a strategic analyst and consultant on great power politics, space policy, alternate futures, and frameworks of conflict negotiation and resolution. Dr. Goswami grew up in Northeast India. She completed her PhD in international relations in 2005. In 2006, she launched her professional career in academic research, studying great power politics, international relations, and ethnic conflicts. She recently co-authored a new book with Peter Gerritsen titled Scramble to the Skies, The Great Power Competition to Control the Resources of Outer Space. And Dr. Goswami, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. It's my pleasure to be on the Xterra website as well as your podcast. Let's talk first about your background a little bit, Dr. Goswami. What led you into this field and then your international, uh, your interest rather in international space commerce? So as you mentioned, I grew up in Northeast India. So as I grew up there, I was exposed to uh, literature on international relations, the United Nations, including the conflicts like the First World War and the Second World War by my father. He had this big library. And so that kind of uh, kindled my interests as a teenager. So subsequently, I continued to study and uh, specialize on polit politics and administration, which included uh, a major in international relations. And as I studied for my PhD in Jawaharlal Nehru University in Delhi, I specialized in conflict re resolution, conflict negotiation, and grand strategy. Uh, and so within that concept, I also studied how nations like China, India, Japan uh, view space. And so that's how I got into this particular field. In your new book, you focus on the United States, India, and China. And in part one of the podcast, we want to talk about the U.S. and India. We'll discuss China in part two. Give us kind of a 30,000-foot overview of the premise of the new book. So the new book, which I co-authored with Peter Gerritsen, is, as you said, titled Scramble for the Skies, The Great Power Competition to Control the Resources of Outer Space. So the book has chapters on, first of all, identifying the discourse change from looking at space from a flags and footprints model during the Cold War, where you had nations like the US and the U USSR going to the moon or trying to go to the moon in terms of USSR to show off technology. And so the idea was to be able to land on the moon, but it was not about long-term sustainable presence. So what the book does is that it shifts that particular discourse and views how space is now conceptualized and talked about in countries like the US, China, India, Luxembourg, and UAE. And the core premise of the book is that the discourse on uh, space is shifting. So space is no longer viewed as something that we can look at in awe and mystery from Earth. Space is starting to be conceptualized from the perspective of space-based resources, commercial return of investment, trillions of dollars worth of resources on the moon and asteroids to be harvested. And the methodology of the book is actually pretty unique. So the, what the book does is that it looks at how this discourse first started at the academic 
elite level, and then how it shifted to actually inform policy in countries like China, US and India. And then it ends by showcasing how middle powers like Luxembourg and UAE that have actually quite mature space programs view that particular discourse. And the final chapter is pretty exciting. It offers a take on the future in the next uh, 30 years. And what do you see as that future? So in the next, next 30 years, what we see in the future is as what countries are starting to do today is to develop capacity for not just uh, you know, uh, using space for support functions on Earth, especially from low Earth orbit, like military support functions, civilian infrastructure to include uh, GPS capability. But what will happen in the next 20 years is that we have ambitions for establishing a permanent research base on the moon, both from China and Russia. Uh, we have the Artemis program that has come out from the US that talks about similar goals in terms of sending a first woman and a man to the South Pole. You have uh, goals of extracting lunar resources to then construct space-based solar power satellites. And, and what is the most fascinating shift in the next 20 years that we see is that it's not just nation states that are going to have such ambitions and will try to fulfill them. You also have uh, private companies like uh, iSpace from Japan who wants to establish lunar settlements on the moon by 2040. You have SpaceX that talks about, especially Elon Musk who talks about establishing a 1 million city on the Martian surface by 2075. You have China talking about creating a lunar base that will enable them to become a deep spacefaring nation and return of investment in terms of economic benefits. So that's the future we see in the next 20, 25 years. How, as an academic, realistic do you feel like some of those goals are, that there might be a permanent uh, established uh, human presence on the moon or Mars before the end of this century? As an academic, so as an, what we do is that uh, we have to look at empirical evidence, and but it's not limited to that, especially because I locate my academic study within grand strategy. And so grand strategy is the coming together of a nation's comprehensive national power that includes the society, diplomacy, military, and scientific innovation base. So based on that, what I did in terms of looking at how serious these countries are about their goal is to see whether they have put in resources for some of the programs that they have announced. For example, China's space-based solar power program, China's lunar uh, exploration and development program, the United States recent announcement of space development policy. So it is fascinating to me that countries like China, India, Japan, and the US are actually putting in serious resources to develop the capacity that they're talking about in terms of space economy and space commerce. And so if you look at the last 20 years, say 1990, 2000, 2020, you can see that there has been an incremental development of capacity. And some of that capacity is focused on reusable capability that will bring down the cost of launch as developing the moon as a base because launching from the moon is 20 times, 22 times less uh, costly than launching from earth, uh, developing capacity to have human presence in low earth orbit and beyond. And you can see that all these countries have actually demonstrated this capability in the last 20, 25 years. Given that trajectory, I think it will be remiss as a grand strategist and an academic thinker looking at space policy, not to take seriously some of the goals that these countries have actually stated in their uh, state-funded uh, government documents, including policy papers. 
In just the last week, there have been a couple of developments with the Artemis program in particular. Um, one was the signing of the agreement between the U.S. and with NASA and ESA for the Gateway uh, program, which is going to be a permanent, uh, basically a space station in lunar orbit. And then there was the discovery by the SOFIA telescope, which is a, a telescope that rides on the back of a, of a 747, of water, the presence of water on the lunar surface in sunlit areas. How important are these kinds of developments, both as far as the agreement with the Artemis Gateway program and the additional scientific discoveries to making some of those uh, dreams basically become a reality? So the discovery uh, of water on the sun, sunlit areas and not just the shadowed areas, which was discovered in about 2008 by the Indian Chandrayaan mission, which launched the NASA's uh, mineralogy mapper and led by famous NASA scientist who is no more Paul Spudis, uh, pointed out to humanity that water exists on the lunar surface. And so, and then Paul Spudis in a famous 2010 interview said that it is also possible that there are there is presence of water across the lunar surface. So what NASA's SOFIA's telescope did was to vindicate what scientists have been talking about for the last 20, uh, 10, 20 years. So I think this discovery of water on sunlit areas is actually vital for the Artemis Accord, which means that it becomes even more urgent to actually establish bilateral relationship with countries beyond just the seven countries that have signed on to the document. And so what, what Artemis needs to do is to then try to reach out to countries like India, who has a mature lunar program and similar you know, goals of going to the lunar surface to prospect for resources. And the, and the indication that there is water beyond the shadowed area has three vital components. One, it actually vindicates humanity's need to have water to have a uh, lunar settlement. So water is critical for oxygen, life support system. And most importantly, water is critical for developing rocket propellant. So the fact that this discovery vindicates some, what scientists had already been talking about actually leads urgency to the development of further bilateral relationships. Now, you, you mentioned that there need to be additional agreements and the spacefaring nations so far have had pretty friendly relations when it comes to space exploration. So in your opinion, is that cooperation likely to last? And what needs to be done to bring some of these other spacefaring nations like India into the family to be able to make, make those things happen? I think one of the most important uh, ability in terms of getting countries like India is to offer joint ownership of a particular regulatory mechanism. So it's important that before the Artemis Accord is, so what we had uh, was the preamble to the Artemis Accord, this principles. It's not the entire document that was released in May of this year. What is happening now is that NASA is now consulting countries like the United Kingdom that has signed on to it, Japan, UAE, Luxembourg, Australia, Italy that actually signed on to the Artemis Accord. And Italy is also a part of the Belt and Road Initiative is that you now have consultation with the space agencies of these countries in building up what could be allowed on the moon or what could be the regulatory mechanisms, including in areas where which would require safety zones. So I think it is important that India would be should be consulted at this preliminary stage 
Because once you have a full document out, it might take much more uh, negotiation to get India on board because there would be concerns about this is not our language. You know, this was conceptualized by someone else. So I think it's critical that uh, a spacefaring nation, a democratic spacefaring nation like India is consulted at this stage. When you talk about countries with mature space programs like India, and then some of these other signatories on the Artemis Accord are countries like the UK, Italy, uh, places like that that are more part of ESA than they are having their own space program. Why wouldn't NASA and the United States deal more with ESA on a lot of these issues as opposed to going to these individual countries? I think the only country out of... uh two countries out of Europe, which is Luxembourg and, U- and Italy has signed on to the Artemis Accord. I think because if you remember the first principle of the Artemis Accord, it clearly states that this will be bilateral relationship with individual space agencies. So that's the reason why you have NASA reaching out to individual countries. But that does not mean that there wouldn't be an agreement with European Space Agency as well. For example, we all know that uh, for NASA's landing on the moon, the European Space Agency is actually collaborating and actually developing the life support system that would be required. So you already have collaboration happening at the institutional level. But I think what NASA is trying to do is that it's building that institutional systemic level of cooperation, but it's also trying to reach out to countries specifically to develop bilateral relationship, which is also very important if you want to have individual countries sign in. And to sign an an agreement with Luxembourg is critical because Luxembourg is one of the first countries after the US to establish a space mining legislation that is being utilized by other private space sectors, including China's uh, iSpace. So, and China's uh, deep space uh, unit within the China National Space Administration. So it's critical that you get a country like Luxembourg to sign on to the Artemis Accord as well, beyond ESA. Now, the relationship under uh, President Trump between the U.S. and India under Prime Minister Modi has improved, I think one could probably uh, reasonably say. Can this be a winning combination for the future of space commerce? I think uh, it it could be, but I think what is required now is to have a joint vision for space between India and the U.S., especially given the requirement to have normative, democratically backed regulatory mechanisms in a future where, say, we have an ability to extract resources on the lunar south pole, Uh, or for helium-3, which is critical for nuclear propulsion technology, and both US and India are actually looking for such capabilities. So I think what is required is as a vision similar to the Asia-Pacific vision that was signed between uh, President Barack Obama and Prime Minister Narendra Modi in 2015, where both countries committed to developing capacity for ensuring the freedom of sea lines of communication in the Asia-Pacific as a response to fears that an authoritarian regime might actually behave otherwise. So I do not see such a vision statement for space. I mean, there are joint statements signed between uh, administrations to include Barack Obama's administration, President Trump's administration, that includes space situational awareness, uh, conversations about more collaboration for India and the US to go to the moon and Mars. But this needs to be Uh, put in a document that is visibly demonstrating a vision for space uh, economic development. But obviously, 
here in the U.S., um, administrations come and go. And President Obama's vision for space is vastly different from what President Trump's vision for space is. And we may have a Trump administration in a couple of weeks. We may have uh, an incoming Biden administration in a couple of weeks. What is necessary to try to smooth that out so that we are able to proceed in a way that has basically a comprehensive goal towards what our ambitions are in space? I think one way to enable that transition in a smooth manner is to look at what were the goals that had bipartisan support. So one of the goals that had bipartisan support was the establishment of a space force. So people think it's a Trump you know, baby, but actually the conversations for developing a separate space service started 20 years back and had bipartisan support within the Senate and, and the House of Representatives. So I think another goal is developing capacity for the moon. And so I agree with you that when President Obama became president, he changed the focus of NASA from going to the moon, which President George W. Bush had pointed out in his vision for space exploration. And he talked about more uh, landing on an asteroid by stating that been there, done that. But I think what has changed and what is critical is that the conversation on space is not what was going on even in 2008. Uh, for instance, when I started work on space policy for, with a grant from the Minerva uh, Research Grant from the Office of the Secretary of Defense, I was surprised that the conversation on space resources was actually, there was a pushback, even when I was starting to present that. Today, everybody wants to actually talk about it. So I think when whoever wins on November 3rd, be it President Trump, who will continue with the focus on what uh, the Trump administration has identified, a moon to Mars program. I think a Biden-Harris administration will have to deal with that reality and will have to respond to the American electorate support for such uh, space economic conversations, including the private sector. I'll finally end by saying that two areas where I see continuity is, first of all, establishing legislation for ownership of space resources within the obligation of the Outer Space Treaty. It was President Barack Obama who signed the Commercial Space Launch Competitiveness Act in 2015. And then Trump signed an executive order on April 6th this year that said that it's a continuation of that particular ethic. And I think the second area where I see continuity is the importance of developing the industrial private public partnership, which is critical for developing space capacity. And given the fact that the support for reusability and launch to the International Space Station through a commercial sector actually uh, was a very smooth transition from administration to administration. And I think that will continue. How important is the ability for the United States to launch astronauts from U.S. soil aboard a, a basically a commercial spacecraft to the International Space Station. How does that change the dynamic? I think it changes the dynamic because it opens up the space launch sector even more to the private sector. For, for instance, all through the Cold War, uh, the United States had a very state-funded uh, space program that limited the capability of the vastly talented U.S. Uh, scientific community, engineering community, space enthusiast community to actually build their own private capability. And that has been the history of the United States, the flowering of private entership supported by the state, but in a much more secondary function. 
And so I think if you really want to have a space sector which is democratic, which is open to people like you and me, you need to go beyond elite astronaut concepts, elite space, state-funded space institutions to much more private sector where you have a much more broader capability development. And I think given the future that we are talking about in terms of settlement on uh, celestial bodies outside of Earth, opening up, opening up space to everybody, I think the investment in the private sector is something that is the way forward with public-private partnership, of course. You know, you mentioned the Space Force as being something that has been fairly recently at least uh, officially stood up. What are the implications of that potential militarization of space? That's a great question because that's the question that all, almost all strategic community and the scientific community is discussing today. So the philosophy and the uh, context within which the Space Force was established was of course a concern with the increasing capability of countries like China and Russia and their ability to threaten US space-based systems, especially in low Earth orbit, and the space-based support communication system, which is important for military command and control, precision navigation timing, missile deployment, uh, also critical infrastructure to include, as I mentioned, societal functions like GPS, uh, ATM transactions, and almost everything that we do in terms of e-commerce. So the Space Force came out of that particular concern that as it was located in the context before it was established, it was within the Air Force. And so the concern was that because for the Air Force, air is the priority, space was not getting the priority it required. You did not have a space culture. You did not have promotions based on a space operator being excellent, but fighters, fighter pilots were given the you know, uh, priority. And so that, those were the concerns for which the Space Force was established. Now, in terms of militarization that you talked about, so in my concept, uh, space has already been militarized. So you already have the use of space for military support functions. You have anti-satellite tests that have been conducted by countries like the US, Russia, China, and India last year. And so the important point is, will that lead to weaponization? So you already have a militarized environment, but will that lead to weaponization? I think the Outer Space Treaty makes it very clear that you cannot place weapons of mass destruction in any celestial body. And uh, as we know, it was signed by the US, then USSR and the United Kingdom. And today you have about 110 countries that have signed on to it. So I think there is regulatory mechanism to actually delegitimize the, the, the weaponization of space as we speak today. I think militarization will continue though. Now, we talked a little bit about the commercial aspect of, of space and the U.S. obviously has openly embraced the private sector to exploit uh, space commerce. India has recently announced it will do the same. Is that a game changer for India? And what technology do they need to develop to be able to further exploit uh, space resources? For India, the Indian new space sector started taking off in the last uh, five years, I think mostly inspired by what was happening in the United States, especially the ability of Blue Origin to launch suborbitally and then SpaceX following very quickly with a orbital launch and reusable rockets. So uh, the Indian new space sector consists of companies like uh, Bellatrix that is looking at rocket propulsion, Rebeam that is looking at space-based solar power and microwave beaming. And so you can see that the new space companies in India are looking at developing capability for space commerce capability, 
uh, space-based solar power, which is a renewable energy. They're looking at establishing systems that would actually encourage private sector companies to look at reusability as well. The Indian government last year established the new space, uh, you know, a new space unit within the Indian Space Research Organization, supported by the Department of Space. So you can see that India is also trying to encourage the private sector to develop some capabilities, even like launch capability, uh, that usually the Indian Space Research Organization has done. I think one of the concerns that comes out of the new space sector in India is that India still does not have a regulatory mechanism in terms of how these companies are going to be regulated, what are the liability factors, and the, and the ability to get licenses takes a long time. And so some of the new space companies I know has actually started registering outside of India so that they can become global. So I think those regulatory mechanisms needs to get entrenched in the system to have a very supportive and an exciting new space sector in India. We are, we are, India is still not there uh, in comparison to say the US and China. So what kind of technology do they need to develop, do you think? What, what, where, are they, where are they deficient? I think, uh, first of all, demonstration of capability, for instance, launching. So uh, new space sector are mostly supporting Indian space research organization in building propulsion technology, as I mentioned, but I haven't seen uh, an independent launch, for instance, which I saw in China's new space sector. So once and then demonstration of capability in terms of microwave beaming that also needs to be showcased visibly. So I think there, the proof of concept needs to move from paper to actually demonstrations that doesn't have to be big, it can be small but it needs to be demonstrated for Indian new space sector to, take, to be taken seriously. The other important point is that if you look at a company like Team Indus that actually was uh, selected as a finalist for the Google Lunar X Prize as one of the companies to try to land a first private lander on the moon, it actually was, a, I, I visited their office in Bangalore. Uh, they later became a part of Orbit Beyond that was chosen by NASA for a commercial payload service to the moon. And so what is interesting is that their facility, when I looked at their lander, it was actually very serious demonstration of a willingness to develop the capability. I think where they finally could not succeed was that they could not generate enough funding. So they were, they were, I think, if I remember right, they were about $20 million short and they could not get that funding. And so, and also there were some problems that developed with the launch capability, which was the Indian uh, launch uh, facility that was being offered. And so I think those, those uh, technologies need to become symbiotic and needs to be developed. And, and a proof of concept has to be demonstrated uh, independently. And so that's where the Indian space, uh, New, new space companies need to actually focus on. Does the willingness of billionaires like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk to spend their own money on those things give the U.S. a competitive advantage in that regard? Oh, definitely. Because what happens is that if you have uh, billionaires like, uh, like Musk and Bezos who are willing to invest their own money, so what if you have money that you can show to the government that hey we are we are investing this much then there is a a, a a risk component that comes in and so you have the government then willing to fund because you already have the money that you have put in and this is something by the way which the european new space company report tells you so the european union new space company report the biggest concern for them is 
you need to show that either you have your own funding, which is able to meet a particular percentage, or you have been able to get government funding for a new space company to be further funded because there is risk involved. And I think the, the fact that both Bezos, especially Bezos, who's selling off his stocks, uh, you know, his stocks in Amazon to generate money for Blue Origin actually matters to a large extent in terms of uh, credibility and in terms of uh, building up that competitive edge for U.S. private sector. And finally, for this week, what does the U.S. need to do to prepare for future competition in space from not necessarily China, we'll talk about that next week, but from some of these other countries that are looking to to exploit uh, resources in space? I think the U.S. Uh, needs to commit long-term to a particular space uh, development capability goal. So, for instance, today, if you look at the new era for space development and utilization, the document that came out of the White House National Space Council, they concentrate on developing capability beyond just getting support from Earth to actually developing support capability in space. So I think if the U.S. is serious about becoming a space-faring civilization that is able to go beyond Earth and develop this space-based economy, it needs to commit to those development of capability goals. Because space, like the pharmaceutical industry, takes time for its uh, capabilities to be developed. It cannot happen next year. It takes five years. It takes 10 years. And, and I think, first of all, commitment to a particular goal has to be steady. Secondly, I think the U.S. needs to take seriously some of the capability development that is happening within China and, of course, Russia as well, which is a very serious spacefaring nation. There is a tendency from the policy community to basically talk about, let's wait and see if China is actually able to do that. But you see, with the landing on the far side of the moon for the first time for humanity, I think the policy community woke up that, oh, we just cannot wait. They'll actually do what they are saying. And this is a trajectory that has followed with 5G. So when China announced that it will become a leader in 5G and artificial intelligence, the same attitude was demonstrated from U.S. strategic circles that let's wait and see, they'll not be able to do it. And then you have a world where China is the leader in 5G and artificial intelligence. It's too late. So I think steady development of capability and taking uh, another country seriously is critical. We'll pick up on some of that next week. Dr. Goswami, thank you very much for joining us for the Xterra podcast. We will continue this conversation with Dr. Goswami next week when we'll explore the ambitions of the Chinese Communist Party and the implications that will have for space commerce. You can find us on the web at xterrajsc.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at xterrajsc. Until next time, I'm Tom Patton. Thanks for listening.